Well, it's such a blessing to be here. And I, looking at that wedding picture, I was just thinking, what I was thinking when they got together was, Josiah, you have no idea what you're getting yourself in for. You're marrying a princess. But I thought in, in such an amazing way that the two of them together, if they could both hang in together, that they had so much potential because there were such a beautiful balance of what a relationship can be like. So I've been excited to, I mean, I was excited to see them make it through the first couple of years. <laughs> and then seeing what God's doing in your church, I'm, I'm just thrilled. And I pray for you guys all the time. And, and so I'm really blessed to be able to come here and see it in person and see what God is doing and knowing that this is just the beginning of what, what God's going to do. And so I'm glad you guys have found a place to plug in with two people that I have such great admiration and love for. So I'm happy to be here. So thanks. Thanks for putting up with me um, too. Because I will, I, I can pretty much tell you right now, I'm I'm 70 years old, I've been doing ministry for like 50 years, and I don't think I've ever taught anywhere where somebody didn't get offended. So just warning you ahead of time, it's not you, it's me. <laughs> but, um, well, you know, the Bible tells us that the real you isn't, you know, biology, that the real you is immaterial. Your, your soul, your mind, your will, your emotions, your spirit, the immaterial part of you, really what's going on in your head is what ultimately makes you who you are. Your body continues to reproduce itself and your body isn't the same body biologically that it was seven years ago. Almost all the cells of your body, a few exceptions, but most of the cells of your body have been replaced in the last seven years. And yet, you still remember times a long time ago. And you still know that you're still the same person. And it's because the real me is my spirit, is my soul. As a result, the real battle for all of us happens up here too. Because that's our essence. And so the Bible spends a lot of time. Well, in Proverbs, it says, as a person thinks in his head, so is he. That is, you are what you think you are. Now, you might go, no, wait a minute. I, you know, there are people who, are, who have delusions about who they are. No, but that is what determines who you are. It doesn't mean you're right about what you think you are. It means you are defined by how you deal with the immaterial part of you. So if you have a Bible with you or a phone, Turn over to um, Philippians chapter 4. Philippians is a pretty amazing book, one of my favorites, but Paul was in prison and being treated horribly, and yet he was writing a letter to his favorite church about how to have joy and how important it was to learn that, to, to experience that. And so he gets down to the essence of basically the book of Philippians is basically Paul saying, here's how I do it. Here's how I am who I am. Here's how I become who I've become. But as he gets to chapter 4, he really boils it down to the essence of who you are in your personal thought life, in your, in your soul, if you will. 
And beginning with verse 6, he says, be anxious for nothing. Anxiety is something that will steal from you life. Every day that you spend in anxiety is a day that you've wasted. Nothing good happens as a result of anxiety. Somehow being able to, to control that is, in a lot of ways, that's the determining factor of what ultimately we become. And so he says, I'm going to talk to you about anxiety and how you can say be anxious for nothing. Now, you might go, well, I experience anxiety sometimes, so am I sinning when I feel anxiety? And the answer is no. But when you, and where he says be anxious for nothing, in, in the Greek, the present tense, which this is, is present imperative. So it's a continuous action, and it's something that you're commanded to do. So when he says be anxious for nothing, our English translation doesn't completely do it justice. Because what he's saying is you need to understand that anxiety is a constant thing that you're going to have to deal with. You're never going to get to the point where I'm not anxious anymore. But you're always to live with the idea that I need to be taking action regularly in the way that I live my life so that I'm processing my anxiety, so that my anxiety is something that points me in a better direction. And then he, he starts off by talking about praying in everything and by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. And there's no need to make big distinctions between prayer, supplication, and thanksgiving. He's just saying, like, in what you ask God for, in what your prayer life is, he says, let your requests be made known to God. Dump your problems, dump, dump your issues, dump your anxiety on him. And he says, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So peace, as opposed to anxiety, is something that he says, if you're praying and you're laying this all before God, then <clears throat> the result can be a peace that passes understanding. Now, that doesn't mean that the peace that God gives has nothing to do with understanding. It, there are some people who would say, so throw your understanding out the window and just have a peace that doesn't make any sense. But that word for passes understanding, um, surpasses is a good translation of it. It means you, it takes you all the way through what you understand and then when you get to the end of your understanding, it can carry you a bit more. And so you'll never find peace just from everything you know, because half of what's going on you don't even know about. You certainly don't know the future. You're not even sure how you messed things up the way you did in the past. And so you're in this place, and he's saying, so your prayer life is, is a step toward getting your head into a place where you understand that, okay, I start with prayer, and I'm asking God for, for what I'm asking him for, and I'm worshiping him in prayer and thanking him. You know, being thankful is so important because I can think, man, my life is a mess, and then I can remember, but, man, it's been worse. And not only that, it probably should be worse. You know, yeah, maybe I screwed something up, but at the same time, 
I could have done it even worse. There are times in the past where I've done it. So I take all of that and give it to him, and the peace of God can take me beyond what I comprehend, what I, what I really understand. But then where I really want to focus our attention is in verse 8, because after he is talking about your prayer life and the role that your prayer life has in, you know, dealing with the challenges of life, then he talks about meditation. Prayer and meditation. Now, meditation is a word that freaks us out today because there are people who think that meditation means you empty your mind or you just think nothing or you have a special word that you focus on or you, you, know, you, you look at a flame. or you do. The world has all kinds of goofy meditations. Here where he talks about meditate on these things, he says, which is the word that's down there in the end of verse 8, but we'll read it. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. So he says prayer and meditation, and he gives us really specific ways in which to meditate, in which to channel our thoughts when we find ourselves struggling, and he goes, here are some points to focus on. Now, the word there, meditate, um, in the Greek, the word logizomai is a word that means, uh, well, you know, we, we talk about logos, the word, over in John chapter 1, where it, John talks of Jesus, in the beginning was the Word, the Logos. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Everything was made by him. Without him, nothing was made that was made. And then he comes on a few verses later and says, and the Word became flesh and incarnated and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. So Jesus is seen as the focus of logic. We use the word logic as a philosophical discussion of how you process things in your mind whereby you can put two things together in the logical syllogism and come up with a conclusion. Everything we learn is based on logic. So logizomai, the my part makes it middle voice. In the Greek, I mean, we tend to have an active and a passive voice. Active is he hit the ball and passive is the ball hit him. But in the Greek, they have the middle voice, which means I am intimately involved in the action. It's like washing your hands. I'm doing the washing, and my hands are being washed at the same time. And so this meditation that he's talking about is something that we are ultimately at the core of. It's at the basis of who we are. This is the deepest, intimate, personal communication we have within ourselves. And here's the focus of that communication. So he says, first of all, you find yourself in a situation where you want to process life and what's going on. Find a deep connection with, spend a little time with, and by the way, I would suggest to you that Meditation can happen in your mind, for sure, and this is something that I do. Sometimes it happens 
when you say these things out loud and talk about them, sometimes you can meditate with other people as you are processing what's going on in your life. Other times I find that journaling can be a real helpful thing. So the point is, how do you process your thinking around the issues of life? So start out by focusing on what is true. That word true there is a word that means it's not hidden. So it's the essence of what is, it's what's real. It's what you really know, what is true. Most of our anxiety comes because we're dealing with things about which we don't know. I can't see the future. I don't know what's going to happen. And I, you know, as the older I get, the more I realize, hey, I, I don't even know how much future I have left. I could, you know, I could, you know, die here. That would be cool, you know. <laughs> but like right now, you'd never forget this message. <laughs> But you'd only remember the first point. <laughs> but the focus on whatever's true is like, what is real? Now, there's a reason why we need to meditate on what's true. Because there's a lot of things that I think that probably aren't true. I, I've lived long enough that there, when I was young, I thought I knew everything. I was an expert. I mean. Before I got married, I've been married 44 years. Before I got married, pff, I, knew, I could have done marriage counseling. I did. <laughs> it's like, because when you don't know what you don't know, you feel pretty confident. <laughs> but one thing life ultimately does to you is you start being wrong about stuff. And then the truth, you don't realize how special it is, how much you want to hang on to the truth. But like Paul, brilliant guy, educated by Gamaliel, obviously spent time with the Lord constantly, and yet he said, you know what? I basically know one thing. I basically teach one thing, Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's the basis for, in philosophy, they have something called epistemology, which is like, on what do you base your truth? And he goes, that's mine. I know that. So if I'm meditating on the things that are true, I want to start with the most essential things. But I also want to make sure that I'm not being fake. As a Christian, you know, I accepted the Lord when I was 18, but I grew up in the church. So I was no stranger to phoniness in the name of God. And it really hasn't gotten much better. I mean, I look at people, I'm just like, I wonder what you really think. I wonder who you really are. Now, I was, I was telling some of the guys the other night, I, I grew up with a father who was paranoid schizophrenic. And I understood very well what phoniness does, because schizophrenics basically create their own world and then insist on living in it. And they judge everyone who doesn't see that they are. My brother was schizophrenic, too. And he was convinced that he and I were the two witnesses during the tribulation. And I'm like, um, it's maybe it's you, Steve, but not me. And that freaked him out, because it's like, he thinks I'm in denial of the truth. Mentally ill people are fake, <laughs> but they don't know it. So I understood at, that, at, that, at a young age, really, I need to be real. 
And it's one reason why I offend people sometimes. I really, I don't try, but I'm just not gonna fake it. I'm just not gonna pretend. Uh, the best I can, there are times when I do, you know. Hey, uh, how'd you like that, you know, dinner? <laughs> I went out with these guys and I don't like seafood at all. But there's, Josiah had been kind enough to order shrimp as an appetizer and I'm like, I haven't eaten a shrimp in like 30 years. But I go, no, no, it's fine and I'm eating them. And I'm like, this is actually pretty good. So then I decide, well, you know, when in Rome, so I ordered a quesadilla and I could have ordered it with steak or chicken or something normal, but I actually ordered it with mahi-mahi and it was really good. And I, thought, I was telling my wife that night, it's, it's crazy how you can decide that you have, you know, you like something or you don't like it. You can even decide that you hate something and then you just go with that for the rest of your life. Life is that way. If we aren't willing to limit what we know, and like for me, that fish is bad, I thought I knew it, and then I ate it, and I'm like, wow, it's actually good. Um, but there's so many things in life that way. So, and I think as Christians, we have a tendency to go, okay, what's true? Oh, I know all kinds of things that are true. I can argue with people about the truth. And it's so important for us to, if we're gonna escape anxiety, stick with what we truly know for sure. Nobody's trusting you to know everything. But if you don't know what you know most, then you have no basis for finding any kind of peace in life at all. And so Paul's like, meditate on this. Think about what's real, what's true, what do you know for sure? And I find a lot of times that my anxiety begins to fall away as soon as I remind myself of the things that I do know for sure. What's the truth? So often anxiety comes from what I anticipate is going to happen. You know, I worry because I see potential bad things happening. Well, most of the bad things that you think are gonna happen end up not happening anyway. And some of the things that you think are gonna be good turn out to be not so good. Um, I remember one time I was teaching at a church, a friend of mine's church, and, and, I, and I was teaching from the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is talking about, you know, look at the birds, they don't worry. And, and so this guy, this old guy came up to me afterwards, and old guy, he was probably younger than I am now, but he was way <laughs> older than I was 30 years ago. But he goes, right now, old person is anybody older than me. So they're dying off like crazy. <laughs> but this guy came up to me, he goes, Pastor, you know how you said, don't worry, I can prove you wrong. You said worry doesn't help, I can prove it. He said, everything I worry about never happens. <laughs> so I, I still never figured out. It was up in Northern California, so he, he might have been serious or he might have been joking, I'm not sure. But, but <laughs> focusing on what we do know is essential to gaining clarity in our lives and taking that as essential. But then he says, whatever is noble, that's a word that refers to, I mean, in America, we don't think of nobility that much. 
but it's the idea of the highest, most appropriate to royalty position that you have. Now, we go, well, I sure don't think of our politicians that way. No, but how about your king, King Jesus? Is what you're thinking about something that will matter when you're before the throne of God, when Jesus is there on the throne and it's all over? Do you really think you're going to worry about whatever happened down here? Do you really think you're going to worry about what the you know, the banking system is going to do or what the stock market is going to do or what the politicians are going to do. Or what. No, in light of what's noble, I want to elevate my thoughts to where whatever I'm going through right now, I am thinking Jesus is on the throne. How does that affect, you know, what I'm thinking and what I'm feeling? Because I want to be someone who lives in the presence of royalty. And not only that, the amazing thing the Bible teaches that we are going to be a kingdom of priests. So it's like someday you're going to help rule. Someday you're going to, if you're, if you're a Christian, you're going to help in leadership in heaven and in the kingdom. And so is what you're thinking right now appropriate to somebody who already knows the end of the story that we are a part of the royal family? Now, as Americans, we're pretty proud that we don't have royal families. I mean, once in a while, you get a royal family that's, that's in America that's kind of like, wow, they're sort of like a royal family, and we usually kill them so, so that we don't have to have a royal family. But, you know, King Jesus, what does he have to do? Me being his le leader, me working with him in the future, how is that affected by what I'm thinking about? And so I start off going, first of all, I want to focus on the truth. I want to think about that. I want to ask myself, what do I know for sure right now? And then I want to say, is what I am thinking about appropriate in the presence of nobility, in the presence of King Jesus, in the fact that he is here and he is in charge? Or am I stressing and worrying that somehow Jesus isn't going to get it right? that somehow this is beyond his control. I think a lot of times people pray with a desperation that's like you kind of think Jesus isn't listening and you've got to force him to do what you want to do because poor Jesus, you know, he's, uh, you hear people, I mean, you always hear people raising money for Jesus as if Jesus is really poor. And like, if you don't give money to this and if you don't vote for this person and if we don't stop this bill from passing, if we don't do whatever, then God is in so much trouble. He is like freaking out right now. God's wringing his hands because we might mess up his program. Let's step into the throne room, the throne room where there's grace, and say, I want my thoughts to be there. The next thing that he says is, whatever is just. That was a word that they used a lot in, in the, the court situation. The idea of justice in the Bible is the idea that both, and what made court court, is that you listen to all sides and you consider and learn from them and try to come up with something that's really fair. Now, everyone has their own idea of justice, and if I start thinking of justice, I think I want things to be the way I want them to be. But he says, no. 
the reason why you meditate on justice is because justice isn't just your thoughts and opinions and feelings. That in order to find justice, the most important people to listen to are people who don't think the same thing that you think. What divides us and, and gives us so much anxiety a lot of times is that I have this idea that I'm right and everyone else is wrong. And again, the older you get, you either get locked in and you go, I haven't changed my mind in 30 years. And you might as well have just died 30 years ago because you stopped living. But what we do, here, here's how humans tend to approach differences. You have a different opinion than I do about something, or maybe you vote differently than I do, or you like something that I don't like. My first thought is, you're probably ignorant. So if I give you enough information, then you will agree with me. So I give you the information, and you still don't agree with me. So my next step is, you must be stupid. <laughs> You're not able to process this, or you'd agree with me. And then you talk a little more, and the person's like smart, and you're like, wow, you're not stupid. You must be evil. <laughs> yeah. And really, we go through that in our minds all the time. And so he says, the stress that that brings to your heart, to your life, that you need to be right all the time, and anyone who disagrees with you is a bad person, is an evil person, that'll rip you off. Where in actuality, like, and I probably do, I do a lot of reading, I love reading, but I probably read more things that I disagree with than that I disagree with. Because if I read something with which I totally agree, I haven't grown, I haven't learned anything. What I'm curious about is why do people believe things that are different than what I believe? So I love having a conversation with someone who hasn't accepted Jesus yet. Because I love to hear, like, what is it that has caused you not to do that? Or, or someone, I have a lot of conversations with atheists and agnostics because I really, as somebody who really wants people to come to know their savior, I really want to understand the reasons that people have for rejecting what it is that I believe. And, you know, you haven't had a conversation with someone who's different than you are unless you come away going, I, I see their point. I, I understand why they think what they do. And that's something, if you think about Jesus, he, he's God for all of eternity, and he becomes a man. You ever wonder why he stayed on the earth for 30 years before he ever started his ministry? He's working construction. Now, when he was 12, he got in theological debates in the temple, and they're like, man, this kid's really smart. We would stick him right on the stage. But Jesus didn't just come to give us the truth. He came to become one of us. The scriptures tell us that the reason he can be our high priest is that he entered into our culture, human culture, and he paid attention, and he listened, and he was tempted the same way as we are. You ever notice why Jesus like asks more questions than he answered? There's something really holy about questions. 
there's something that partly made him who he was. And, you know, you go, yeah, but some of these people I know, they're so weird. How weird do you think things were for somebody who's been in heaven for all of eternity, <laughs> and now they're born into a barn, and like growing up, people thinking that they're illegitimate, and then here they are working construction. It's like, man, I got a universe to save, and uh, here I am working, and then I'm only going to work for three years. It seems so backwards, and yet there's something about our connection with God that is affected by and actually depends on the fact that he did that. And so I love the fact that when somebody would disagree with him, he didn't try to argue with them. Like, for instance, when the rich young ruler came and, like, I want to follow you, and he, Jesus could have been going, boy, that will help our offerings. But instead, <laughs> he goes, okay, tell you what, go give away everything you have to the poor and come and follow me. You'll have treasures in heaven. And the kid turned around and walked away sad. Said he was really sad because he had a lot of stuff. And it also says that Jesus watched him walking away and looked at him and loved him. That tells me so much about Jesus that if it was me, I would have gone, wait, wait, I'm, you know, I'm talking about in your heart. You're not, I'm not really literally, please, you know, here, there's the <laughs> offering box right there. <laughs> Can I look at somebody walking away from Jesus and love them? That when I try to do the best I can to offer them what I see, and then they walk away, how you handle that shows whether you're secure and what you believe or insecure. And that's why in being fair, we need to listen to people who disagree with us because it reminds us that, hey, we too are in a position where we're in flex, we're growing, we're learning, we're not insecure and you know we want to be connected with people and the only way that you can really be connected with them is by sharing relationship sharing information and right now there are so many people who reject Jesus because his people can be such jerks regardless of which I mean our country's divided churches divide Christians are divided it's like I don't even care what side you're on. If you're on a side, you're alienating so many people. I remember my pastor, Chuck Smith, when uh, you know, he, he said, you know, I have to understand that half of the people that are coming to church this Sunday are people who disagree with me politically. So he said, why am I going to preach politics and scare away half the people that need Jesus? And it was funny, we had this conversation because as Christians get more and more politically involved. And if you're politically involved, fine, I don't care. But, you know, <laughs> I asked Chuck, I go, what would have happened in 1968 if when the tent was pitched and the revival was happening, the Jesus movement was just getting started? I said, what would have happened if you had got up there and endorsed Richard Nixon? And he said, the Jesus movement would have ended in one day. So it's like, we're citizens, vote. I, don't, I have friends that vote every way possible. But if we you know, alienate ourselves from people who disagree with us, you know, again, we start taking our perspective and confusing it with the truth. Then we become very ignoble. And at the same time, 
we find ourselves in a place where we're really not being fair. We're really choosing sides instead of saying, I love the perspectives of everyone. They all have reasons why they believe what they believe, and I'm here to win them for my Lord. That's what matters to me. And when I do that, again, a lot of my stress kind of goes away. It's like, all I ask myself is, okay, I'm stressed right now. Is there something that I am being too narrow on? Um, now, I might be right about something, and yet still, if I need to be right, if I need other people to reinforce that, that's a reminder I am building anxiety into my life. So I have to get to the point where, you know, whatever is just, that everyone gets a hearing, that I'm secure enough that I believe that Jesus is going to still be standing. And when we get to heaven, we're all going to look at what we thought. And even what we all look at my sermons about Jesus that I've done for 50 years, and I'm going to go, man, most of it was really stupid. It didn't fit. It wasn't, there was something else going on. But I can relieve my anxiety by not having to win, by being fair, and by listening to people who are different than I am. And it's amazing. I mean, one of the greatest things that anybody ever says to me is, you're not like any other Christian. You're not like any other pastor. And I'm like, they might be saying that for bad reasons. I don't know. But the way it, the way it feels to me is, okay, good. I'm thankful that people who would normally not think about Jesus, maybe they are because they had locked themselves into a particular position. And once they met somebody who's like, believes in Jesus, but isn't the way they thought all Christians were, that they begin to open. So I want to think about that. You know, I want to ask myself, if there's anxiety in my life, is any of it coming just because I am so locked in that I'm really not being fair to other people? Because, you know, I don't care what, you know, opinions you have, there are good people who disagree with you. It's because now we know in part you know, then we'll know face to face. In the meantime, we're all kind of messed up. So we're going to be better together. We will have better conversations with two people who love each other and disagree than the conversations where we're talking to people with whom we agree about the other people that we hate. And so, you know, again, processing, logically meditating on those things that are just. And then he says, the things that are pure. Purity involves certain filtration, involves cleansing and knocking away things that don't really belong. For me, if like for instance, if I'm and counseling people or if I'm making a decision, I go, okay, there's a whole bunch of thoughts you have going on here. Which of them aren't really worthy of you? You know, if I'm going to do something or I'm not going to do something, if I have five reasons on each side, one of the best purification rituals is to say which of these aren't worth determining what I end up doing or thinking. So I, it's purity is about boiling down who you are and what you know to really it comes down to this. Then clarity can come and there's less anxiety. A lot of times, I mean, if somebody... You know, my worship leader recently 
um, left our church because they wanted to move to Idaho and help somebody start a church. So I love him. I love his family. And I, and, but as he's coming and talking to me about it, part of me is like freaking out because he's my worship leader and I love him. I'm watching his kids grow up and I'm, he fits in so well and he does our outreach stuff and everything. So there's this bias that I don't want him to leave. On the other hand, and I could tell him, and the guy that he went with isn't a great guy, and I could have trashed him, but this is what happens when you know people from when they're kids. But um, I had to go, you know what? I want him to listen to God. And so if I had talked him out of it, I could have, because I'm his pastor. He respects me. I, you know, he knows I'm old enough to know stuff. But at the same time, it's like, okay, that wouldn't be a good reason to not do something if God is leading you to do it. And so purity for me means eliminate all the stuff that shouldn't be why you're doing it. When I talk to people who want to move, quite often they'll, I'll go, okay, give me all your reasons. And I, they give me the reasons, and then I go, which of those reasons really aren't worthy of you making a move like this? And you can usually eliminate like half of them it's like most of the time we even want know what God wants to do. We're just like trying to come up with reasons to explain it and defend him. Sometimes when people will come to me and go, yeah, Dave, I really need to know what God's will is in a certain situation in my life. And I go, you already know what his will is, right? They go, how did you know? Because there's a sense of knowing and then there's a sense of trying to make sense of it that are two different things. And so purity just means let's boil it down to the essence. For me, purity means if I have a decision to make, I'm willing to do either one. I'm open to whatever it is that God wants. And so Paul says, in your meditation, in your thought processes, learn to filter out the things that don't really belong in the conversation the opinions of people that shouldn't matter, the fear of what might happen, the wondering how you're going to explain it. all Filter that stuff out and stick with what's pure. And then he says, boy, I'm not going to get invited back if I go too long, but whatever is lovely, that word is interesting. And my watch just told me my battery is down to 10% too, you know. But <laughs> I don't know if it means the watch's battery or mine, but... Whatever is lovely, the Greek word there is a cool word. It's prosphalase. Phileo means like friendship, a healthy kind of love that we're to have for people, a fellowship. Um, it doesn't mean an inferior to love to agape like some people think because when it says the father loves the son and gave all things into his hand, it's the word phileo. And when it says men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil, it's agape. But it's a specific kind of love that usually emphasizes fellowship. It's why Philadelphia means the city of brotherly love. So, yeah, Adelphos with, with phileo, with philos. So whatever is, in this case, pros phileos, it means whatever is towards connection. So, and this is really important too. As I'm looking at my anxiety, I can go, 
is there anything I can do that can move my life, my relationships, my perspective toward people, toward caring about people? Quite often, if you're stressed, you're probably thinking about doing something that's going to alienate you from others. And then, because the devil loves to get us alone. He lo- he's scared to death when we connect. And so what this is, is meditate on, okay, what should I be thinking about right now that can move me toward love, toward fellowship, toward friendship? And then whatever is of good report, um, the Greek word there is euphemos, and phamos, the word famous comes from that. It's, it's, um, it means that you're talking about people. You're, you know, it's gossip, it's, you know, fame. It's who people think that you are. And the word you means well or good. And so what he's saying is meditate on that which will make others look good. Like if I talk about you, and even if there's something negative or critical that I want to say, I always also want to include, but man, I love you and there's so much good that I can say about you. If I don't do that, I leave that loose end. I end up alienating people. Because like if you're just bad-mouthing somebody to somebody else, the person who's listening to you thinks, this is probably the way they talk about me when I'm not here. And so to meditate on, okay, I'm looking at everything. How can I look for something in which I can make someone else look good? I can make somebody else famous for good things that they've done. And if we, if we talk and, and I just tell you some great stuff that's happened, that ministers to me and it ministers to you. If our conversation, if you're the type of person where, you know, I come to church and nobody wants to talk to me anymore. I mean, maybe because they really don't want to hear what you're bugged at right now, or they don't want to hear the criticism. They just, they would love for somebody to tell them something good that's happening in their life, not in denial of the negative, but with a real constructive approach toward, I want to get a handle on my anxiety, and a part of that means I need to intentionally meditate and communicate on the good things that I can say about people. It's, it's not even for them. It's really for you. You will always feel better saying something good about someone than you will feel when you're saying something bad about someone. And these things balance out, but it's probably like 10 to 1. So if you have to say something bad, then you're not even going to approach balancing it out for you or others unless you can say like 10 good things as well. So meditate on things that are not only moving toward relationship, but you're meditating on the things that are making you talk good about others. And then he say, says, if there's anything virtuous, that word there in the Greek, arete, is, a, is like today you couldn't even use this word because virtue, it actually meant like a man, being manly. Now, nowadays, as a man, I have to apologize. Sorry for being a man. But what the word referred to is a man in the best sense of the word, like a guy who could take it, who was strong, who was willing to battle through, who would take the lead, who would have your back, who you can trust him, 
you know, yeah, you're, you, you might go, well, that's men for you. Okay. In the same way, there's a, there's a virtue to a woman being a woman. And I'm not, you know, I'm not on a rant about, you know, that we need a, I'm just saying. <laughs> to be strong, to be dependable, to be who you are, who is it? For many of us, we maybe have a man who taught us how to grow up. Whether it's a father figure, and for girls, the man that you, you know, are married to, or the man that you really thought you should have married, but instead you married this guy. But <laughs> your perspective <laughs> on virtue, like if there is anything that I can trust its character, and then finally, anything praiseworthy. Intentionally think about not the things that all my prayer requests, but end it off by going, God, you've been so good. And I praise you for all that you have done. It changes everything. You do that, and he, he's with you. Think on these things. Meditate on these things. And then he finally in the next verse says, and by the way, I've showed this to you. What you've seen, learned, heard, seen in me, do that and the God of peace will be with you. You want peace? Learn to pray and then intentionally focus your attention on the truth, on nobility in its essence, the crown, the king, the Messiah, on justice, on being willing to be wrong, on being willing to hear another side, on weighing out your thoughts instead of just buying into a whole package, whole hog. You know, in purifying your approach, in doing things that move you more toward love, in doing things that catch you gossiping good things about people, and then honoring virtue where you see it, and finding ways to praise him, that's a formula to bring peace, to let the God of peace be ruling and reigning in our hearts. I would encourage you, go over this list and maybe even learn them, but, but even write down, okay, what are some things that I can talk about right now that are true, absolute truth? What are some things that I can reflect on, cogitate on, you know, to meditate on things that are noble. How can I bring myself into the kingdom of God? How about where can I be more fair than I've been? How about, okay, what do I need to clean up so that my life can be more pure, my perspective can be more healthy? And what can I do in the next week that will bring more people into my life instead of alienating people from me? And how can I gossip good about people? How can I honor the virtue that's around? And where can I praise God? If you think that and you express that, your meditation might be in a conversation with somebody else. And you go back and forth and talk about each of these things, talk your way through it. Again, it's an inner logic that expresses itself in a way that can truly change your heart and your life. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for your word. 
And for these words from Paul, who had a tough road, he found a way to escape his anxiety, not by denying it, but by moving in a positive way through prayer and meditation so that he took control of his mindset. Lord, we need this desperately. We live in a world where these qualities are needed more than ever before. Teach us to find your peace by obeying you. Lord, if there's somebody here today who really doesn't understand what it is to know you, but they hear this from your word and they're like, wow, could I use that in my life? I pray that today they would consider that maybe they give you a chance, that maybe they continue to just look into you, to come to church, to talk to others, to even open their hearts, even without anybody knowing that within their heart, they would just go, okay, I'll let you work in my life if that's what you want to do. So, Lord, just please do that work. We're trusting you. We're thanking you in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you. Um, if you guys give it up for Pastor Dave.